0: Welcome to No Small Talk, the arts and entertainment podcast for the Arkansas Times, sponsored by the Bentonville Film Festival. I'm Stephanie Smittle, the arts and entertainment editor at the Arkansas Times, and I'm here with Omaya Jones. Hello. And today we'll start by highlighting a few things going on in the area. We'll take a look at Fitzcarraldo, uh, which is the next film up in the Arkansas Times film series. And uh, check out some new music from Silver Anchors and Paul Bear. We'll be right back. Caraldo, Klaus Kinski und Claudia Cardinale Der Film von Werner Herzog Erleben Sie die Geschichte eines besessenen Träumers, der mitten im tiefsten Urwald des Amazonas von Caruso und großer Oper träumt und dafür das Unmögliche wagt. Welcome back to No Small Talk, the arts and entertainment podcast for the Arkansas Times. And today we are going to talk a little bit about a film called Fitzcarraldo. It's the next up in the Arkansas Times film series. You can catch it. This Tuesday, April 17th, 7 p.m. at Riverdale 10 Cinema. It'll cost you 9 bucks. And, uh, yeah, Omaya Jones is here with me. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Werner Herzog. Uh, this film came out in 1982. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's German with yes. subtitles. Is that the way we're showing it?
1: I'll to double check. But the plan is yes to show it with this, the original subtitles. Because there is an English-language dub, but it is originally in German. Which is odd, considering that the main character is inspired by this this story of an Irishman mm-hmm. who went to the Amazon and moved this boat from overland, And so like, and well, we might get into it. That's not, like the whole backstory that inspired this story. But Herzog has said that that's basically all he took from this guy's story. The rest of it is all him, all Herzog. It's all fictional. Right.
0: So my understanding now, in reading about this was that Herzog was taken by... The, um, an image that didn't ever actually happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like he was, he thought that the story was interesting. The story about this guy, Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald, who moved a 32 ton boat in between two rivers in the Amazon forest, right? To access a potential rubber territory on a hard-to-access, which is probably an understatement, parcel of land. But the thing is about this guy who this mm. movie is based on is he disassembled the boat to do it. Right. And Herzog had this idea in his mind of this ship, right? Like going yes. up the mountainside and then became obsessed.
1: Yeah, so he disassembled the boat to do it. And he had, I think, like a team of engineers to help in the process. But Herzog, he says he was inspired by two things. And one which is, is this story, but the other is he was... In Brittany, and he saw these stones, these ancient stone structures that had been erected, you know, thousands of years ago or whatever. Sort of like the uh, was it Guinea Island with the the headstones?
0: Oh, or uh, the Easter? Yes, Easter yeah, Easter, yeah, yeah.
1: And so he was sort of trying to f- reverse engineer how these ancient peoples with primitive tools had moved these massive structures to to erect them in the earth.
0: Right, because right. that is. Wild, Mm -hmm. right? Like the pyramids. And then so
1: he took these two ideas and then that became the basis for Fitzcarraldo. And he sort of used what he had intuited from reverse engineering, the engineering feat, and used that to move the ship. And of course, in the film, the ship that he moves is bigger than the one, the historical version. He says, I think, 320 tons or something like that. And they don't disassemble it. They move it whole over a mountain. And the film itself is almost documentary in that they actually did it. So the film was sort of this document of the process of actually doing this thing, which is sort of ridiculous.
0: Right. So, so no special effects. Right. Right. Everything we're going to see when we watch Fitzgerald on Tuesday night happened. Yes. And was agonizing. Evidently. And super dangerous.
1: Well, he would argue with you that it was very safe. And so, for example, (laughs) uh, he says that like when they were moving the boat, there were the, they had the back of the the rear of the boat blocked off so that people couldn't be behind it. And people were warned that with these steel wires that they were using to secure the boat to stay back when it was moving because, you know, if one of those things were to snap it would be like a whip and it would could cause serious injury. Now, there were people who were injured on the during the filming of this, and some of this is he would argue with the, due to the irresponsibility of, of the people themselves. So, so, for example, one person did die. They had these. Um, so they they always use the term Indians. And this That's
0: used... a big footnote.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. One person did die. Right. Well, so this was filmed with like something like 700 Indian extras. They used the term Indians, even though this is South America. They had these canoes. And so the way Herzog tells it is many of these extras were not strong swimmers. So they would take precautions by doing things like tying up the canoes at night. Uh-huh. But supposedly a couple of the young men somehow stole a canoe, it tipped over, and then one of them drowned. And that's the one only person who died. Now, there, there are other instances oh, like there was a plane crash. Oh, unrelated
0: to filming of a scene, right. or at least indirectly related.
1: Right. Um, now, there were a couple of plane crashes, but he says no one died. Uh, there was an instance where supposedly a crew member was bit by a snake and had to cut a limb off. To prevent the poison from spreading. Mm-hmm. And he even tells of a story where there was this another tribe that was supposedly hostile, attacked uh, attacked them, and someone was injured and they had to do surgery. And Herzog describes holding candle, a candle up to provide light for the surgery Shit. to do this.
0: Can you imagine being in that other tribe and then you walk up mm-hmm. and not only is it like your rival tribe, but they're like, organized, lifting this photo of this
1: mountain. The whole thing is so unreal. And, you know, the whole production took place over, like, four years. It was a real troubled production. They had trouble financing it at different times. They'd actually cast originally an American actor named Jason Robards to play the title role of Mm -hmm. Fitzgeraldo. And Keith Richards was in it as a mentally handicapped individual. But, you know, Robards got sick and this doctor forbade him from coming back.
0: And Mick set. Jagger,
1: right? Yeah, and Mick Jagger. And right. Mi- did I say so Keith Richards? You did, so yeah, it mean, wasn't I, both. It wasn't both. Right. M- but
0: right. Mick Jagger left the right. filming.
1: Right, because and he had some Rolling Stones other... commitments.
0: Okay, well. Right.
1: And then so instead of recasting that part, they just he rewrote it to take that part out of the film.
0: For which this concert stage was probably a good deal more secure than yes. anything he was doing yes. uh, down on the Amazon. So, okay, so for these reasons and many others, this film has become sort of a metaphor for you know herzog's sense of hubris mm-hmm. and his tenacity slash obsessive behavior however you want to like two sides of the same coin maybe
1: yeah and i think that's a fair characterization but it seems as though he would argue that but he
0: would argue tenacity we would argue obsessive obsessive yeah. behavior
1: but yeah he 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 would argue against these claims that he had this huge ego or something like that just as he would argue that the set was actually very safe even though you know an engineer quit that mm-hmm. they had hired for, the, for this film production and then he sort of did some calculations on his own to secure and move this boat and the whole thing is really crazy when you think about it and the whole thing's documented of course in Les Blanks documentary Burden of Dreams.
0: Burden of Dreams so mm-hmm. this is the kind of like a making of and then Les Blanks most of his subjects Prior to that, and and I think maybe after that, or around his career, had been musicians: mm-hmm. Ry Cooter, Lightning Hopkins, and then he's uh, filming this making of Fitzcarraldo with Werner Herzog, and famously, sort of lures him into reproducing a, a comment off uh, on camera mm-hmm. that he had said, and initially off camera by sort of saying, "Hey, let's step to the side and mm-hmm. do this interview," and that's when, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, Werner Herzog said his famous. A uh, thing about this, the jungle being uh, he said it's a land which God, if he exists, has created it's a land that God, if he exists has has created in anger it's the only land where where creation is unfinished yet, taking a close look at at what's around us there there is some sort of a harmony it is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle, uh, we, in comparison to that enormous articulation, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban
1: novel. Cheap
0: (laughs) novel. Like, mm, you know. Blaming it on the jungle, yes. <laughs> right? And,
1: and, and like, you know, to be fair, this is the second film he's done in the jungle. The first one was The Fury* Wrath of God, which I don't know if the production on that one was as quite as harrowing as this.
0: Also Klaus Kinski. Yes. In, in the uh, mm-hmm. leading role in, in that
1: movie. Yes. Um, and he, it's funny because just reading a bunch of quotes from Herzog, especially particular, like that's not the only thing he said about the jungle. He has uh, lots of opinions, and uh, one of the things that I've been reading, uh, sort of like in bits and pieces, is he wrote a journal, you know, through this whole process, and in the foreword he describes writing a microscopic handwriting that even when he decided to publish this journal, it was hard for him to decipher. But he has many, many, many things to say about the jungle, um, most of which I don't call offhand, but, like, it's called... Uh,
0: no, like, not Ver- Werner Herzog's journal. We yes. Can, yeah. Can look that up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yes.
0: So we're going to screen this on Tuesday night. It occurs to me, because we have a lot of like sort of ideas about this conquistador. And by the way, mm-hmm. he's obsessed with opera. He's obsessed with the legendary singer uh, Enrico Caruso and blasts Caruso singing from like a phonograph that's yes. mounted on top of the ship. Mm-hmm. Navigating its way through the jungle, I mean, to me, this just says western conquistador imperialist yes. uh, you know like like basically sort of considering um uh maybe some problematic ideas about art and a hierarchy yeah. of art and and its legitimacy and bringing it to sort of the the um the the uncultured masses, right like so there are a lot of stereotypes that I wonder how this will feel versus when it was made 1982, watching it in 2018. Like, are, are there any parts that you see on Tuesday that we're going to
1: go, Oh God, well, probably uncomfortable. Probably all of it. Well, I'm so one thing I would say is the depiction of Fitzcarraldo, the character relative to other characters in the film is somewhat, he's like a, he's like a nice racist. But like mm-hmm. the, the, way the 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 interaction between him and the the indigenous people is so is sort of he doesn't understand them, but he doesn't realize he doesn't understand them. He doesn't really try to.
0: This uh, is uh, all this is, sounding yeah. pretty accurate.
1: <laughs> it's exploitive, but you know the behind the scenes stuff apparently is quite different. Like they like in the the film, Fitzcarlo doesn't pay them fairly for their for their labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thinks that there's some sort of. I think they all almost have like a sort of a mystical air about them. Do Whereas, you
0: mean that his interactions with the actors that were that were in the film I mean, was like different it, than the way that like for example Klaus Kinski's character is portrayed as treating them?
1: Right. Right. So like Herzog by all accounts was very fair and um he like he paid them fairly, he was respectful. Uh he did things, you know, sort of like I don't know I don't know like how might characterize it but sort of like recognizing the fact that you're having this crew this large crew uh with a bunch of men just to like keep these tensions they reportedly had prostitutes as part of the um the the crew mm. and it's, it's all very weird there's there's a point where it was in um one of the these things i was reading it was talking about how one night i think it was actually it was in his journals klaus kinski was kept up one night because one of the prostitutes had decided to to how do i want to phrase it she was basically working on the swinging bridge that made a lot of noise and kept Kinski up all night, which was.
0: Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's an image to add to the boat going up up the yeah. up the mountain. Um, the exoticism element goes mm-hmm. both ways, right? Though there's this scene where he's like, so he's there and he's uh, standing. I think it on his boat and uh, the people uh, the the. The natives of this part of the jungle are around him, and they're all sort of grasping at his blonde hair. Yes, and, um, he's completely engulfed in like their gaze. Right. I am so curious how like how how we as a 2018 audience will sit there and experience scenes like that.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and that's I feel like that comes up more and more often. Right, sort of looking reevaluating things from the past and their depiction of various peoples and cultures. And then especially if you look at like the actual criticism from the time and how they don't really grapple with these issues, but now we're sort of having to do this work of going back and really um, recontextualizing things and looking at them in, this, in a different lens.
0: Right, right. Because there's no doubt that if this film were made and reviewed today, that would be an, an intrinsic part of yeah. anybody's mm-hmm. review. But if you read like, you know, um, Roger Ebert's review... Of at the time in 1982, it has mostly to do with you know Herzog's the story and the Mm -hmm. wildness and sort of the metaphor of of this for his uh, obsessive tendencies toward his art Uh, anyway, but not so much to do with the with those type of things like those types of things that I feel like will make me a 2018 viewer shift around in my seats and wonder about later and think about later, right.
1: And I think I read, it was a series, it was three perspectives on Fizz Corraldo, and then two of, of the three reviews, and this was contemporary, so three, two of the three reviews did address those issues, and they thought of the film as a whole negatively as a result of sort of this depiction of Native people. Mm-hmm. I always say I picked, I, I, this is a film that I picked to screen, and so like, while I want to have conversations about this, I don't think that's like a disqualifier. Mm-hmm. in the same way that uh, it would be if we were talking about so not I mean not to get too off topic but so for example like I would not pick a film by Woody Allen because of all of the stuff that's outside of the actual content of his films that I just think that we could you know choose to like show or glorify someone else besides him but when it comes to the actual content of the films I feel like there's more leeway in terms of what you're doing because I mean one depiction is not an endorsement so i think that you can be critical of the depiction of things in the film and critical of the characters and i think that's okay Um,
0: well then then the question is like do we feel even like klaus kinski's character is an empathetic character like he's pretty wild eyed in this mission and you know i I don't i don't necessarily like get the feeling from this film that he's you know i i mean not to spoil things but things do not go well, for this journey, like it is not easy. It is, it does not, um, it is not a picture of him setting a goal and yeah. striving his best to achieve it and then coming out on top. You know, that's not the picture that we get. Like it, the picture right. that we get is much more complicated. Yes. So you have to show up Tuesday to see how that pans out. But, um, Fitzcarraldo, we are screening it, uh, April 17th as part of the Arkansas Times film series. Anything else we need to mention about Fitzcarraldo?
1: When we record the spoiler-filled podcast, we'll have lots more stuff about you know, new German cinema and my my sort of how recently I've come to Werner Herzog, Mm -hmm. which yeah, which we had kind of talked about a little bit, but yeah, so like for me, I was not really familiar with his work for like a year ago until he did the masterclass in Hot Springs, and then I started to sort of re go back and like watch a bunch of his films.
0: Do you feel like there was a time where he wasn't fashionable, and now? He's sort of coming back into fashion to talk about, or was he always there for film people?
1: He was probably always there, and but I feel he's, he sort of broke through to the mainstream, probably with Grizzly Man, I think, because I remember when that film came out, everybody was talking about it, and everybody saw it except me, it feels like. And then, you know, there's there's always that clip from the documentary with the penguin, the lone penguin, wandering off uh, towards a mountain range in Antarctica, that I think is pretty popular on the internet, but it just took me a while to come around to actually get around to watching these films, and, and I did it as part of uh, this process of becoming more familiar with '60s and '70s German cinema mm-hmm. and this movement that happened then. And I'm continuing on that, you know, exploration that journey.
0: Uh, check it out. That's Fitzcarraldo this Tuesday at Riverdale Ten Cinema as part of the Arkansas Times Film Series. Uh, this is no small talk, and we'll be right back. welcome back just a couple points on arkansas related art front so the first thing is uh, florence price a little rock born composer educator pianist and she's also featured in a documentary called the caged bird Uh, her music has undergone somewhat of a revival in part because sort of select group of artists has taken it upon themselves to pursue uh, sort of advocating for her legacy and in part because some of her music was just rediscovered. So it's never been played before. Um, In particular, her violin concerto number two wasn't played for modern audiences until February when a violinist named ergene Kong played it with the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra. At any rate, initially uh, sometime between 1917 and 1927, Uh, Florence Price was denied membership uh, to the Arkansas State Music Teachers Association. And because of the work of uh, Linda Holzer, who's a pianist and a professor at UA Little Rock, uh, Florence Price has been nominated for uh, an honorary, uh, it's called a, a Foundation Fellow Uh, Basically, an award from the national affiliate of the Arkansas State Music Teachers Association. Just a little bit of interesting musical news. An excerpt from Price's biography in the Encyclopedia of Arkansas says, While in Little Rock, Price established a music studio, taught piano lessons, and wrote short pieces for piano. Despite her credentials, she was denied membership into the Arkansas State Music Teachers Association because of her race. Worsening racial tensions in Arkansas in the 1920s convinced the Price's to move to Chicago, Illinois in 1927. There, Price seemed to have more professional opportunity for growth, despite the breakdown and eventual dissolution of her marriage. She pursued further musical studies at the American Conservatory of Music. And established herself in the Chicago area as a teacher, pianist, and an organist. And then in 1928, uh, G. Schirmer, the one of the major publishing firms of uh, sheet music, accepted for publication prices at the Cotton Gin. In 1932, she won multiple awards in competitions sponsored by the Rodman Wanamaker Foundation for her Piano Sonata in E Minor, a large scale work in four movements, and her more important work Symphony in E minor so an interesting uh, little piece of sort of retroactive Mm. musical justice (laughs) Uh, this just caught my attention because uh, Arkansas Times ran a piece on the rediscovery of Florence Price's violin concerto number two we ran that in February it's called in the margins you can find it at arktimes.com but uh yeah so Florence Price Linda Holzer called her a determined, tremendously talented musician. She did not let discrimination slow her down. She went on to achieve so much as a composer and pianist an organist and teacher. I think about the movie Hidden Figures that came out last year about accomplished but hidden women in math and science working behind the scenes at NASA. Similarly, Holzer says, I feel like Florence Price's contributions were minimized during her lifetime. And around this time, this so this New Yorker piece came mm-hmm. out. Uh, Alex Ross, who wrote a fantastic uh, compendium of 20th century music called The Rest is Noise, listening to the 20th century through its music, uh, wrote a piece for the New Yorker on Price's uh, uh, the discovery of this concerto and sort of maybe painted uh, what some people would argue was a, a simplistic Sort of idea of like, now she's gotten this justice, right? Like now she's, we talk about the canon and canonization and um, Alex Ross. I think you have a little bit of that. Yeah. Right. From the New Yorker.
1: So he was making this point about in music circles, the idea of a canon and great works and genius. And it it reminded me a lot of some of the similar uh, conversations that you have around film and like who, whose work is recognized, who gets entered into the, the cult, the hall of greatness. And it says, in progressive music- musicological circles these days, you hear much talk about the canon and about the bad assumptions that underpin it. Classical music, perhaps more than any other field, suffers from what the assiduous critic-composer Virgil Thompson liked to call the masterpiece cult. He complained about the idea of an unbridgeable chasm between great work and the rest of production, a distinction as radical as, is, as that recognized in theology between the elect and the damned. The adulation of the master, the genius, divinely gifted creator all too easily lapses into a cult of the white male hero to whom such traits are almost unthinkingly attached. I feel some ambivalence about the anti-masterpiece line. Having grown up with the notion of musical genius, I am reluctant to let it go entirely. What I value most as a listener is the sense of a singular creative personality coalescing from anonymous sounds. I wonder whether the profile of genius could simply evolve to include a broader range of personalities and faces, but there's no doubt that the jargon of greatness has become musty and more than a little toxic. So for me, in film, a lot of what I do is just sort of trying to find things that aren't on like a list of the 100 greatest films or 100,000, because a lot of those are sort of the same names. dead white guys that you hear a lot. So whether it's Alfred Hitchcock um, or, you know, Michael Curtiz or, uh, you know, like there are a lot of French guys like Truffaut and like they all make great films, but there's a lot of stuff out there that just isn't recognized. So I think of someone like Barbara Loudon who did a film called Wanda, which is pretty well recognized. There was a a film in the 70s called Girlfriends and there's stuff that's sort of been rediscovered and people have to like fight for it, right? Um, And that, spoke to me is this idea of like this person who was sort of ignored by her contemporaries and now it's up to people now to sort of reevaluate her work and reestablish her as a person worthy of being recognized.
0: Right, and then you know I wonder if part of the task too is just to to do the raw work of mm-hmm. listening to the music, right? Mm-hmm. And like it's very easy the story is very captivating, particularly like Florence Price the way her concerto was stuffed into a box. It mm-hmm. ended up in Illinois. It was found by a, a couple who was... Um, they were I, going
1: to renovate the house. Yeah.
0: Going and they to just the found house.
1: this stuff. Like, they found manuscripts, musical manuscripts, personal papers. And, you know, like, this stuff would have just probably just been thrown away had they not been, you know, as careful as they were to actually look at what they had on their hands. And a lot of the stuff was just thought lost forever.
0: Right. And then, then, so we see it in the, the story is interesting and we see it in that context. And then we, as our Arkansans have a particular interest because we feel like, you know, this person was born in Little Rock. She's, she's from here. She's native Arkansan. And the other part of it is just letting the music speak for itself, right? So balancing the idea of this being rediscovered in its important place in history and what it is the fact that it was ever lost to begin with says about our culture at this time, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like during the forties, fifties, sixties, and and even earlier when Florence Price was initially denied admission to, to a teacher's association in this way. So it's interesting in that aspect of what it says about our culture, but a lot of things are interesting in that way. And Mm -hmm. then the music is, is, does not, the music the intrigue and the the drama of the music does not live up to the drama and the intrigue and mm-hmm. the the all of the nuance of the story. And in Florence Price's case, uh, her music is really fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it was like amazing that we really mm-hmm. have this manuscript, this physical thing with her handwriting on it. And um, when I was up in Fayetteville speaking to Urging Kong about it, she spoke uh, about. She said something like, you know, this it may seem sort of superficial, but to look at this manuscript, the first thing that popped out at me was just how neat it was. And Florence Price, either this was maybe a later draft or maybe she was just one of those composers who organized in her mind first and then put the pen to paper. But if you look at the manuscript, there's there are very few edits Mm -hmm. and what there are seem to be little little suggestions. I, in retrospect, after hearing you read that little excerpt from alex Russ. i i feel like maybe it was a little unfair to to paint that as simplistic i think maybe what he's saying is that the idea of uncovering someone and putting them back into the mm-hmm. canon in the rightful place is too simplistic yeah like that we we're a, maybe maybe that's a little affording ourselves a little bit too much power and credibility like in this moment to say like yeah. she is forever uh, uh, sort of uh, vindicated.
1: Yeah and I think I mean, a little bit of it feels like maybe it's critiquing I don't remember if it was in this uh, another section of this piece or if it was somewhere else but I was reading it's just, sometimes it feels like people are sort of patting themselves on the back for going back and doing like righting a wrong okay. uh, whereas where it should take more work right to sort of I don't know if I'm making sense, but just the idea of like it taking work to like really, I don't, I think. That
0: giving, so, so that makes a lot of sense that giving like Florence Price an honorary thing 65 years after her death is great. But what do we do about it after that? And, and how do we keep that from being, as you said, just a way to sort of like just a self-congratulatory way to another way of. Of oversimplifying and, and putting all of the complexities of the racism that got us there in the first place in a nice, neat little right. box because we righted this wrong forever. Yeah. And we didn't, right? Like yeah. decades of people <laughs> did not hear Florence Price because of this.
1: Right. And so, and it, you think of like all the people who have not, whose work like wasn't just found by, right. by good fortune, you know.
0: Or like, that was found and the people were like, well, I guess we'll take this to yeah. the Office Depot and have it. You know, incinerated. We'll put the rest in a garage sale.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm I'm really happy that that this is happening. I wish he had not been denied entry in the first place.
0: So, if you want to find out more about Florence Price and uh, not limit your exposure of her work to this moment, check out the story about Price's lost Violin Concerto number no. 2, and uh, you can find a recording of that online by violinist Eugene er Kong. Her name is spelled E-R hyphen G-E-N-E, and the last name is Kong, K-A-H-N-G. This is No Small Talk, and we are going to wrap up this segment. just want to qu- give a quick shout out about a trailer for a movie that came out. It's forthcoming this year. It's called American Animals. Uh, it's a shame we've already finished our series of heist movies in the Arkansas Times film series because this is evidently a heist, a heist movie about a heist that was inspired by a heist movie.
1: Initially, when you when you mentioned this, I I didn't think about it, but this actually screened at True False. It was one of the things ah. I didn't get to see. Yeah. Okay. So okay. so this is it's a documentary, right?
0: Uh no. So so it's very evidently tightly tied to the true story okay. but it is a fictional movie uh, bart Layton directed it and evidently uh, it is about well I'll, I'll sum it up by reading what vice says about it because it's um wonderful and comedic they say back in 2004 four students at kentucky's transylvania university hatched a plan that would become one of the craziest art heists in american history Funded in part by a fake ID business and inspired by repeated viewings of Guy Ritchie's movie Snatch, the Friends managed to pull off a messy robbery at their school's rare book room, escaping with an original copy of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species and other rare books worth around $10 million. Uh, They were later put in prison. Vanity Fair, uh, Fair called it one part Ocean's Eleven, one part Harold and Kumar. <laughs> So the trailer is out for this. I it caught my attention because uh, it has our very own little rock musician John Burnett in it somewhere, oh. who evidently got sort of looped into being in a small role on this film. He sadly, I did not see him in the trailer. Uh, John, if you're in there, let us know the minute mark. We'd love to. <laughs> we'd love to know. Uh, but we're excited that you're in American Animals.
1: Yeah, the heist series is over, but depending on. I'm sure this is going to scream though, locally, right? Because it says in theaters June 1st, and we get a lot of these smaller movies, so.
0: I hope so. The trailer looks really, just makes the whole thing look really fun. I'll admit that I, like, watching the trailer, I feel some sort of sympathy for these protagonists, even though Mm -hmm. they did this terrible, destructive thing that landed them in jail. They sort of come off as, you know, sort of just hapless. It's very slapstick. Like, they were not careful. The characters remind me like of the way you know the protagonists on something like freaks and geeks are portrayed mm-hmm. like i i'm a little worried i'm gonna watch this and sort of root for them maybe I, that's what they had in mind
1: so i'm looking at this right up and it, so american animals was directed by a guy named bart layton who did a documentary called the imposter are, are you familiar with that
0: i'm not i in, in reading about american animals mm-hmm. i came across it right so it's 2012 mm-hmm. and Based on a, a, about a guy from Spain who convinces a family in Texas that he's like their long lost son. Missing right? child.
1: Right. Okay. When I saw it, it was on Netflix and I, and I watched it in part because I don't watch a lot of documentaries. So I was making an effort to watch a lot of documentaries. Okay. And it's known for, like there, there's, there are, there are a lot of interesting things with documentary, right? Like we think of documentaries as being this one specific thing, but you can really play with that form a lot. And so there, like there were some reenactments and a lot of this talking head stuff. But it's a real bizarre story about how this guy, who's, I think he was probably like sixteen or eighteen, pretending to be this kid who was like fourteen or fifteen or whatever, who had gone missing. But then there's like this twist towards the end where I won't spoil it in case you want to see it. But it's it's, it's pretty wild. Uh, I highly I recommend it if you're if you're into documentaries and true crime type stuff. You should totally. check it out.
0: Check out the imposter and then check out the trailer for American Animals. Uh, we'll hope that'll come uh, later this summer. A couple other quick shout-outs that we want to give in this segment. Uh, there's some new music. So a few few points. Paul Bear uh, released a song called "Dropout" on Adult Swim. That came as a little bit of a surprise, I think, because you know they they weren't, I guess, officially in the studio. They were going to go out on tour, and they spent some time in the studio, evidently, and produced this track called "Dropout." which is um uh, part of Adult Swim's uh, singles program so every Wednesday for 52 weeks they release one track and this Wednesday it was Paul Bearer it is just as you would expect it is 5 minutes and 15 seconds which is you know short for Paul Bearer of fuzzed out guitars and just stellar vocals check it out that's drop out uh should by the time you hear this it should be available for purchase and download also, uh, not out as I as I say this into the microphone, but will be out by the time these words reach you, is Major Arcana Volume 1, a new record from Silver Anchors. This is a project from Philip Rex Huddleston, uh, Sidney Hunsicker, Jack Lloyd, Jeremy Brasher, uh, John Willis, and some other folks that were involved in the music for Mark Thiedemann's film, White Nights, and they have a band called Silver Anchors coming out with an album major arcana volume one yes lastly but not leastly there is a new track rather called true true from the Uh ahas winners of the arkansas times musician showcase a few years back which is said to be the first from a forthcoming full-length album so true true check it out we'll put it on the blog post that accompanies notice of this podcast this is no small talk and we'll be right back
1: Welcome back. Now we're going to do some recommendations. So my first recommendation is for everyone to go see Fitzgerald. Of course. Uh, Tuesday, April 17th at Riverdale VIP Cinema. Seven o'clock. Only $9.
0: Is it called VIP Cinema now?
1: Yeah. Is that I think about it's the River-
0: recliners, probably? Probably. sweet yeah. recliners. Yeah.
1: They are. They're pretty nice. They they're pretty, pretty sweet. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. uh, and my second recommendation is next Thursday... I believe April 19th at Ron Robinson Theater. The Yarn is having their next storytelling showcase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one is Me Too True Stories of Sexual Assault. It's $10 online, $15 at the door. You can get tickets at the yarnstorytelling.com. But they're, all, like, they're always good shows. They're always, and it's important to hear these different stories and the different things that they're showcasing. So those are my two recommendations, Stephanie. What do you think? Excellent. Have?
0: Well, I, I love that recommendation. I feel like, no matter what you think about the Me Too movement or where you have decided that you stand, like listening to people mm-hmm. tell their stories is never a bad idea. Right. Like you cannot that's, go wrong by that's listening super,
1: to them. Important. Yeah. super important.
0: Super important. My recommendation is uh, something I've been meaning to throw out, a shout out to for a while. It's a show on KABF 88.3 FM, the voice of the people called Over Underground. And it's uh, 3 to 5 p.m. on Saturdays. I find myself catching it because that's usually when I'm doing something where I have the radio going on in the background, 3 to 5 p.m. on Saturdays that prime time. And I just love their ear and their sensibility. Also, along with uh, Girls on Thursday nights, the show Girls that uh, Alex Flanders hosts, these these guys on Over Underground are super cool about keeping listeners in the know about women making rock music. So I dig that they do that and they do it really well. And they do it without making it like sort of a token, like here's a block of women music. It's just, it's not, um, it's done with little fanfare and so tastefully and it's just i feel like it's just a part of their aesthetic to uh, include uh, women rocking out on their show so i really appreciate that i love the i love over underground uh check out their tumblr page too it's basically sort of uh, by the album fleshed out thoughts it's uh that's at over underground show.tumblr.com that's my recommendation
1: do we have a move for the week?
0: I do. Since we've already bombarded you with recommendations to come see Fitzgerald on Tuesday night, and by the time you hear this, the Thelma and the Sleaze show at Sticky's will be over, I'm going to say that you should go catch Beethoven in Blue Jeans. You've probably heard this name come across your radar a thousand times because the symphony does something like this every year. But if you're anything like me, you sort of heard it, filed it away, and uh, didn't necessarily or maybe you did maybe I'm the last one to find out that Beethoven (laughs) and blue jeans is cool but it's really cool so uh, thanks to a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts the ASO is doing this thing called the Canvas Festival and it's basically like a pairing up of symphonic music with visual art and for this installment this painter Barry Thomas is going to paint live as the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra plays Beethoven's Symphony number six in F major, the one that they call the pastoral symphony. And so his, the image of his hand painting is going to be shown on the screen behind the symphony as they play. It's really cool. And then the rest of the program is sort of built around uh, the idea of really visual, uh, the visual pairing um, uh, visions and images that go along with the symphonic music. There's uh, Mark Rothko's color studies uh, in four movements and that's by Adam Schoenberg, not Arnold Schoenberg. No relation. A sandwich between those pieces is Ravel's Mother Goose Suite, which were originally meant for children and uh, invoke the likes of Sleeping Beauty and Tom Thumb. As the title, Beethoven in Blue Jeans suggests, this is super cash. So come in whatever you are wearing on your Saturday or Sunday and come early Before the concert, they're throwing Beer and Brat's Street Party. So they'll block off that street right in Mm. front of Robinson Center and serve craft beer, uh, bratwurst, and then there's going to be music by the uh, Episcopal Collegiate School Steel Band. And if you get your concert ticket, that gets you a free admission for either day's party. So the symphony will do this uh, party and concert twice. Uh, One of them happens this Saturday. The party starts at 5.30. The performance is at 7.00. And then again, I believe it's uh, 3 p.m. is the performance on Sunday and the party starts at 1 p.m. And here's the other cool thing. If you are um, really scrounging for change like I am and feeling like your wallet does not necessarily speak symphony tickets to you Mm. in its current state, uh, pack a picnic and a blanket and you can go to the lawn of the Arkansas Art Center. On Saturday night, and catch a simulcast of the symphony's performance for free. Nice, yeah, super. Uh, so catch that if you want tickets or want to find out more. It's ArkansasSymphony.org backslash BlueJeans18. That's my recommendation or, or my move rather. Cool. This has been No Small Talk, uh, sponsored by the Bentonville Film Festival. I'm Stephanie Smittle. This is Omaya Jones, and thanks for listening.